The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to the Exchange Podcast. I'm your host, Rob Cox, editor of Breaking Views in New York. Donald Trump has made some huge, absolutely huge promises about getting the U.S. economy growing again. He's projecting GDP growth rates of some 3.5% as a result of cutting taxes, reducing regulation, and rebuilding crumbling infrastructure. That's a big stretch given the 2% growth rates the U.S. has seen since the global financial crisis. To help us understand how a President Trump might do this, my colleague Gina Chan and I recently sat down with Judy Shelton. She's one of the Republican nominees' official economic advisors, and we were in Washington. Judy is an economist with expertise in global finance and monetary issues. She's co-director of the Sound Money Project at Atlas Network. She's the author of Fixing the Dollar Now, Why U.S. Money Lost Its Integrity and How We Can Restore It. And she also wrote something called The Guide to Sound Money. She's published by The Wall Street Journal, The New York Times, The Financial Times, Washington Post, Nihon Keizai Shimbun, El Economista. She holds a Ph.D. in business administration from the University of Utah Judy has a surprisingly international background and perspective for someone working for Trump, who you would think, given his appeals to the nativist and sort of anti-trade instincts of the electorate, isn't a big international guy. In particular, Judy has spent a lot of time in Mexico, which is sort of Trump's weird nemesis, uh, and also in Russia, which is more like his friend. In fact, in 1989, she published something called The Coming Soviet Crash, a book that proved rather prescient as the Soviet Union thereafter abandoned communism and went to something like, um, well, I wouldn't call it capitalism. Give a listen as Gina and I chat with Judy Shelton about how Donald Trump can make America grow again. So, Judy, thanks for coming in to Washington to talk to us a bit about Trump's campaign and the economic policies that, that the campaign is thinking about. Before we do that, I'd love to get just a sort of understanding a little bit about how you got involved in Donald Trump's campaign in the first place. Well, I have worked for many years with presidential candidates trying to put together economic agendas that, that would resonate with the public, but hopefully have a consistency in terms of ideology or principles or just economic good sense. I actually started out working more for Ben Carson and uh, was very involved in his flat tax and uh, rollback regulatory burden approach. I liked it. Um, but I also uh, had been providing some advice on monetary issues to uh, the Ted Cruz group and have also worked a little bit with uh, Marco Rubio. And your background, you, were, you are an economist and also I think you have a PhD, right? In, yes. It, but not in e economics and business. Well, where I got my PhD was at the University of Utah, and it, it's a doctorate in business administration, but they divided it. There were four specialties. And mine was through the finance department, and then my allied field was international economics. Right, right. When you look at the campaign, you look at what Donald Trump is trying to accomplish, I mean, I, I sort of break into a couple things. There's monetary policy. He's certainly been outspoken about how the Federal Reserve and central banks should comport themselves. He's also had some views about fiscal policy. Let's start maybe, though, with monetary policy. I know you've been a, a proponent of what you call sound money. I mean, could maybe break that down for us a little bit, how you view that? And then is this what the president, or sorry, 
<laughs> the candidate um, who Possible wants to be president. president. Yeah. Possible president. Wants with, to be. With, this is a, a positive Freudian slip for our team. <laughs> for your team. It, I, I know no, no. you read anything into this, dear listener. Not at all. Not at all. But um, no, and I, I appreciate the question, and those are precisely the areas that interest me the most. I have to say that I think Donald Trump deserves a great deal of credit for bringing attention to the impact of currencies and exchange rates on, for example, free trade. I think that he, he started out by focusing on currency manipulation. And I think that it's very important to get us to this larger issue of what would be a more desirable monetary platform, not only so that we can have genuine free trade based on, on clear market signals across borders, but I think it goes to the heart of the increasing financialization of the U.S. economy and a disconnect between monetary policy and, and what I would call the legitimate uh, money and credit needs of the real economy, the productive economy. I think we're, we're gearing monetary policy too much to appeasing financial markets. Uh, people are entirely too focused on the latest utterance from one of the monetary authorities, whether they're the head of a district uh, or regional Federal Reserve Bank or one of the um, central bank chiefs. And I mean, um, the markets are fixated. Every utterance does. They that. are obsessed. But can I ask if you so assuming you believe that the federal funds rate can be higher than 25 basis points based on some of the economic indicators the Fed looks at? How does that fit in with currency and trade a little? I'm just thinking because if you if you raise the Fed funds rate, if U.S. interest rates go up, the dollar is almost certainly going to strengthen. And then we're, how does that sort of affect then the whole trade discussion? Yeah, exactly. Uh, but but I mean that goes to the to me the Fed has painted itself into a corner because you're exactly right. It could be very detrimental. I imagine markets would be shocked, and you could see some some terrible fallout. If, for instance, they get surprised next week and Janet Yellen announces on Wednesday that we are actually raising 25 basis points, you could see a taper tantrum all over again, maybe something worse. Um, well, it maybe so, it solves the inequality <laughs> a little bit. <laughs> well, yeah. Well, this, is, this is goes to the heart of it. To me, what has happened is, and then we'll get back to the Fed funds rate, which used to be the way we could go through right. federal open market operations, and, and then that was a way, at least banks were still making loans. It was just a matter of, of it being related to the reserve requirement and meeting that, and you could sort of um, tweak that by focusing on, on targeting the, the Fed funds rate. The tools now are different, and I think harmful to the economy. But when you say uh, about inequality, I think it's fair game and commendable that Donald Trump is challenging the Federal Reserve, its its methods, and its model. Because I think there's reason to believe that what they intended to happen through quantitative easing for these extraordinarily low interest rates for nearly eight years now is not meeting the objectives that the Fed set for itself. And we do have a situation where it could be perceived as monetary favoritism because you have a central bank, the most influential in the world, channeling low-cost funds to a very small segment, certainly of the American population, the wealthy investors. And that's at the expense of another much larger segment, people who have ordinary savings in their bank accounts who are getting virtually nothing. Or you have retirees 
who did everything right their whole life and put money away and thought they could live in retirement off of the returns and and it's just not sufficient so I think when when you do that through a pre presumed independent agency it is inherently political and it deserves it warrants discussion in in the public arena and uh, I would be more concerned about a candidate who who was afraid to confront the Fed and to say maybe we need fundamental monetary reform. What about the global situation? Because obviously, you know, we, we don't live in a bubble and we're affected by what goes on in the rest of the world. And Mr. Trump has talked very forcefully, especially about China and uh, possible currency manipulation there. We're seeing what other central banks are doing globally to try to boost growth in, in their regions. You know, where do you see the effects of that and your sort of views on whether this has become too distortive for the global economy, you know, and, and what could be done about that? Well, I, I hope that Mr. Trump's focus on currency manipulation does become a catalyst to examine just these issues. We are very quick to say if a country intervenes in foreign exchange markets that it is manipulating its currency. I would also argue that if a central banker of the European Central Bank or the Federal Reserve lifts an eyebrow a certain way with people like your col colleagues on the financial news networks paying close attention, that can move markets in 10 minutes faster than the than draggy eyebrow. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> <laughs> no, I, I mean, it, it is silly, even though the Federal Reserve, when it started the QE and ran down the value of the dollar, uh, was accused of trying to, to initiate a currency war by the Brazilian finance minister. And the answer of Fed officials was, no, no, um, we are honoring our domestic objectives as prescribed in the dual mandate by Congress. And that is just an, an incidental effect. And they had pl plausible deniability to say, no, we're not trying to make that happen. But the fact that it does happen is, is what impacts the other countries. Should we turn to uh, fiscal policy a bit? Because this is, sure. this is one where I think there's a lot of room for, I mean, if you listen to central bankers, they are pretty clearly stating that we kind of done everything we can. We got a few things in the tool chest, but basically it's up to governments to start actually having fiscal policy. Um, when I look at some of the projections for deficits in particular under the plans put forward by Mr. Trump, you see that they're predicated on a pretty high growth rate because otherwise we go into you know major uh, deficits, the debt goes up, you know, some people have scored them differently, but you're looking at if you don't have 4% growth and you're going to make all those promises, we're going to have a, we're going to have trouble. Okay. So how do you get to 4% growth? All right. Well, first, uh, let me just say, though, that I always smile when I hear the central bankers who insist on maintaining 100% discretion, total independence, and how dare you question anything, and who can move trillions of dollars in, in three trillionths of a second when they issue a communique nevertheless say, well, there's, there's nothing we can do. They demand to have the power to do something, and then the results have not been so great, and so uh, the model is not performing as they had expected. They've hit their metrics, and they don't know what to do, and what we used to call forward guidance, and what was meant to be this very useful tool, 
has now turned into dueling speeches by central bank officials. So, so I, I think it's a bit of a cop-out where they now say, it's your turn, and they throw it back to Congress. Fair, but fair point, uh, definitely. But I, I, would, I would say this, that, um, uh, well, one, one more point of this, this unholy alliance between monetary and fiscal is I've, I've heard Ben Bernanke boast, and, and it has been picked up by his uh, successor, not quite as in your face, but to say, oh, we're now a revenue center because the, the Federal Reserve has bought so much from the Treasury in government obligations, and all of that interest, we take a, a, a pittance, like 2%, and we remit it back to Treasury, and that counts as revenues to the federal budget. So you should be thanking us. And I'm thinking, what kind of magical thinking is this? <laughs> that our central bank, government agency, buys the debt issue by another government agency, sends back the interest, and calls that revenue. To be fair, that's not, I don't think Janet Yellen has taken quite so, as you said. But has, but has, has doubled it's down. It's not a great, it's not a great selling it has only, dollar balance sheet. But it has only gone up under her administration at the Fed, or her, her time at the Fed. It has only increased, and it's, it's, it's the sixth largest source of revenue to the federal budget right now, and right. It's, uh, it's considerable. So, and in fact, in budget calculations now for the 10 years, because that's we're going to get to the fiscal, they include the amount they expect to get from the Federal Reserve. That now counts yeah. in, the, in figuring out uh, what our resources are going to be, because it has become significant. The Trump program, without a doubt, is based on being a pro-growth, pro-economic growth approach. Uh, it's not pie in the sky, I would say aspirationally, we think we can do better than 2%. I think three, three and a half, we're hoping to get there and e possibly even higher before the 10-year horizon. It's a little silly to prognosticate that far ahead. But when it came out, as you know, it was scored as, as a 10 trillion projected yeah. deficit. We have been working with the House Republicans and brought our tax rates down to, uh, to very close levels to what they wanted to have. We're looking at more like a 2.5 trillion okay, cost. So this, and so this is you're right. This is a work in progress. Yes, but that's right. well in the realm. And then there are other savings that we think we can pick up through regulatory and trade reform. There will be a cost to the child care program, mm -hmm. projected maybe 250 to 350 uh, billion. But um, we also are costing that out and um, being very realistic about. We, we, you know, Clinton has said that she, she has a $250 billion infrastructure program that's based on infrastructure bank that's levered up, I don't know, 10 times. Donald Trump has said that he would see that and double it, I think. Um, but it's not, he's not quite specified how he'd pay for it. Uh, that's in the plan. Again, I, I, can't, so I can't get ahead so of we'll it, get but more clarity on that you will, we'll and uh, it's already on the website to some extent in general terms. But I, I do think that you would probably get a pretty bipartisan consensus that there is some need for targeted. None of this phony shovel-ready stuff and none of this uh, end up paying off uh, political allies. These have to be strategically targeted and well-reasoned, rational projects with the most bang for the buck. And uh, I think that that, 
it's a good time to finance. I suppose people would all, all say that because of the ex incredibly low rates. So you and Larry Summers, you have common I was going to say, it is, I, will, I will say, Larry <laughs> Summers, um, and th there's a bipartisan consensus, I think you would find Republicans might be willing to, but only if there is an extremely tight procedure to, to not waste a dime of this. So do you get a sense from the sort of work in progress aspect of his economic plan that he would be able to work with Congress to get things done? Because there is a sense that even with Republicans in Congress, um, whether it's Speaker Paul Ryan or, or others that, you know, although they've come out in support of Trump, they haven't been sort of full bodied about that and questions of, you know, he, he has pretty um, strong plans, but whether he could actually get anything through Congress and, and get that approval to, to move I, it forward. I think he can be surprisingly effective. Hmm. And probably the fact that he had some well-known tensions with, with uh, House Republicans, uh, with Paul Ryan, in a way may serve him in terms of being able to work um, across the aisle because I think it shows that he is not locked into a certain approach. His childcare uh, plan should be well received, I would think, by Democrats. He, he is now working more with House Republicans in terms of tax reform, because that is an area where he'd like to, to start moving very quickly. And uh, we have, if the House Republicans maintain a majority, and they have been very, very focused on meaningful tax reform, his uh, brackets now coincide with theirs to a very large extent and, and the levels at which you would enter into. There's some few small things to work out. But part of reforming or, or reworking a little bit the Trump's original plan was to come into compliance with what the House Republicans made it clear they could and would support. So, so I think he can be effective. And at the same time, I think that where these things run up against a wall in Congress, the fact that he has shown that he, he's not, he doesn't just get rolled <laughs> by any, by the party, but can be somewhat independent, will work to his advantage in, in, in seeking the necessary compromises, but hopefully not a principal or major aspects of his, his economic program. So do you see kind of the Trump that we've been seeing the last few weeks where he is sort of sticking to the script more and sort of evolving his plans, that that's kind of the, the candidate that we'll see going up to November? Because that had been a question in the past, but it seems like there have been some adjustments that have been beneficial to him. Yeah, I think he's very intelligent, very intelligent, and uh, um, doesn't want to lose and took notice when when some aspects of the way he, he was presenting himself and his approach maybe wasn't appreciated to the extent that, that he would hope. And uh, if it's a matter of changing stylistically slightly, yes, at the same time, I don't think we're losing sight of the essential Trump, which is he is in control. He is in, in command of his campaign. I think Kellyanne Conway's been a wonderful influence, and Steve Bannon, both excellent. But Trump himself has a great feel for the energy of his audience and in a particular venue, and he seems to respond accordingly. 
uh, to the greatest effect. But but we're seeing more more discipline. That's well, almost become a cliche. But yeah. yeah. <laughs> What's it like being a senior economic, you know, part of the senior economic advisory team to Donald Trump? I mean, does he listen to you guys? Does he solicit your advice? How do you? pull together your thoughts to try to influence him and, and, and help shape his, his policy agenda? I think he does. I think he, he listens in a, in a thoughtful way, um, weighs it uh, in his own mind. It has to meld with, with the themes that are working for him because they clearly matter most to voters. And I think he's very aware of, of loyalty to his voters. Uh, so he's not just going to embrace what an economist tells him. But I think he's extremely pro-free market. He's a businessman. He brings that mentality. He loves competence. He loves to see a plan that's straightforward. He doesn't want to hear this on the one hand, on the other hand. He works with his team in a way not unlike other candidates in that the team meets periodically with the candidate, but the bulk of the work is really accomplished through uh, getting directions and saying, all right, these are our obvious major objectives, and here's what I say, here's what I say. There's some arguing back and forth. Uh, some and you have of like us. committees, some people who work on tax policy absolutely. versus trade. Or oh, yes, play. absolutely, yes. And then, and even provide those portions of a speech, although ultimately a speechwriter decides. Right, sure. But, but um, yeah, so for instance, well, I guess I won't name names, but there were certain individuals who were working on the, the monetary portion. There was another working on trade and uh, another another team on the tax. Well, Larry code. Kudlow and Stephen. Larry Kudlow, Kudlow definitely weighs in. He's not an official advisor, yeah. but I think that um, you're probably aware of his, his book on, sure. on JFK and Ronald Reagan. Larry's formula, which he espouses beautifully and compellingly, is that under both a uh, successful Democratic president and a very successful Republican president, the formula that has worked, just, I, I even hate the word stimulate, let's say to unleash growth, in the, in real growth in the economy, is um, low taxes and stable money. And if you go back in history, that has been the, the right platform where we see a correlation with increased GDP when you bring up stable money, I even I even like the idea. Go back and look at uh, under uh, the years of Bretton Woods, whether it's Thomas Piketty or even Paul Krugman. They will say, oh, during those years, 45 to 72, we'll say, we had much higher and consistently higher, uh, solid 3% plus GDP growth. We had much higher productivity. And the best thing is we had um, decreasing inequality. You mentioned the, the sort of trying to get the, the, the candidate has to stick to the things that are helping him in the polls. One of the things that certainly propelled Donald Trump's campaign has been immigration reform. Right. And he's taken quite a hard line. He says he's going to deport 11 million undocumented immigrants. Most economists that I've spoken to about this seem to view, they don't know how to quite match the candidate's promise with good economic theory. Because you're losing 6% well, of your labor force. Gina wrote a great column on this uh, a couple weeks ago where we just sort of totted up the costs versus the benefits. It certainly looks like, just from an economic perspective, the costs are greater than the benefits. You now you can make a case that for other social, whatever reasons it might be. Right and, and, and let me, because I, I think you, you have to make, it's, it's an economic and a political and a social. I mean, there, there are ramifications in, in all three areas. And, and I'm going to speak 
a little off the cuff here because I don't talk about this, but I, um, I taught in Mexico at a, a graduate business school for six years. It, you would, all of the professors came in from the United States or Europe and they were brought in. These were people getting their masters and they were very well-to-do students, really, I would say, sons and daughters of the local right. ultra-wealthy in Monterrey, which is a very wealthy right industrial now, yeah. city. Um, as a result of that and being on the board of that school and working with the, the, the benefactor of that school, uh, who was very good friends with Vicente Fox, I started meeting regularly with Vicente Fox before and after he became president. Who has president. had some strong words. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. Exactly. Very recently. Words we can't use on a podcast. Yes. No. That's right. <laughs> Family That's right. podcast. This is why it's, it's personal for me because of the, the attitude he's taken. I mean, I went uh, to uh, his ranch in Guanajuato to, to just to be, be meet with him and his closest, two closest advisors on the economy and, and the interior and had lunch with his mother. <laughs> and, and he was very anxious to have a good relationship with the United States should he win, which he in fact did. And so I met with him many mm -hmm. times then at Los Pinos. So that's why I paid so much attention when Mr. Trump went and thought he handled it extremely well. On many occasions when Fox would personally upbraid me, I guess I was a barometer of, of conservative opinion in the U.S., and, and, uh, and said, why, why don't you let our people come because they help your economy so much and, and they're such wonderful people and they're, they're hardworking and they have great values. I said, they are so hardworking. They have great values. They are truly wonderful people. In fact, the ones who do make the dangerous journey to the United States Studies in my own, by my own students showed these are not the least educated people. Mm -hmm. These are actually the entrepreneurs. These are sure. the ones willing to take by a risk. By definition, they're risk takers. They are risk takers and admirable for that. And they're also the venture capitalists for their own country because they send all of that money mm -hmm. back yeah. home and then they have relatives buying real estate, improving housing. So they're truly the economic heroes. But my point to Fox was, why can't these talented, hard-working, terrific people be successful in their own country. Whose fault is that? That to me is a matter of governance. So I think the Mexican government owes it to their own people. I, the, the slogan for the, a candidate who started a fourth party, uh, this very gentleman who had introduced me to Fox and arranged for these many visits, the motto was, por que no aquí? Mm -hmm. Why not here? Why, why not here? to have um, seguridad, prosperidad, oportunidad, mm -hmm. why not? Because they want it just as much as they deserve it and they're willing to work for it. So, so I'm not sympathetic and I resent very much Fox making the U.S. the villain. There's no reason in the world why just across the border um, people couldn't be just as successful. And um, I think I've seen some studies trying to put a price on, on what the Trump on the wall program will, well, no, not even that so much as um, the uh, the impact on the U.S. economy of his immigration policies. I, they're not sufficiently defined for anyone to reasonably project those dollar amounts. That well, we just, I don't think we we know that he's. Well, they they, they should be though. If we're well, gonna, but I mean, how? Because we know that it'll start with um, people who are criminals. I mean, can you give me a dollar figure for what it costs to well, we, the can. justice system to but process? You can. I mean, to some degree, because the president Obama has deported more recently. illegal immigrants and than than in previous administrations, and there is a cost. I think you even. You wrote about it, Gina, and your thing. I mean, so but you'll have to figure out which of the eleven million are 
Yeah, and you, you can you can see that um, that that position is is being worked out. But yes. I think no one would doubt that he is the candidate who called attention to it. And uh, as I say, I live part time in Arizona. I'm I'm very aware of it. And then having worked and had a long relationship with Mexico, it's an issue close to my heart. And uh, but ambassador I, to Mexico? What do you say? No, I said no, <laughs> yeah, no. <laughs> no. No, but I I love that country, and uh, I would love to see uh, um, us prosper together. Um, I think immigration is very much in Mexico's interest, and uh, and and the U.S. is not a villain here. The idea of working for mutually agreeable and desirable goals, including protecting the people who are now subject to coyotes, so that's horrible, yeah. uh, horrible what happens. And, and women especially are vulnerable to being exploited. And uh, you know it's not fault finding except with uh, encouraging criminal elements because of you have a lawless situation sure. on our border. And well, I think that needs to be corrected. So we've talked a lot about Mr. Trump's plan, especially because you are advising him on that, but what do you think about uh, the other side with Hillary Clinton's plans, her tax plan, her she has her own childcare plan and, and healthcare reform and, and that sort of thing. I mean, her plan is not as radical. It seems to be much more targeted. Um, so there are questions of how much it would really make a difference overall for the economy, but yeah. There was this uh, Census Bureau report that just came out that showed last year that for the first time in, in decades that um, incomes did go up by a, a pretty large amount, 5.2% for, um, for median incomes. The poverty rate also went down. So what do you think about that in relation to what President Obama has done and Hillary's plan to try to build upon that versus the more sort of radical approach? Well, of well let me Mr. acknowledge Trump. that recent statistic, and I hope it's not an outlier, because I think people, uh, laborers, have been the hardest hit with stagnant wages for so long. I probably won't believe it's real in, in, until we see uh, an uptick in inflation. Because if people are actually getting an increase, the way the Fed's model was supposed to work, I mean, because that's suggesting maybe now it's starting to work, would be that you would see the, we haven't seen increased business investment, because that would have been to expand production through purchases of plant and equipment, which sure. would necessarily mean hiring more people. Yeah. And it would be the, the pressure on wages that would have brought about this higher household income. And if you see that pressure on wages, then, then uh, you would expect to see, with the higher income, increased consumer demand, which should then be reflected in a higher CPI. And we haven't been seeing that. So let's, let's see if the trend keeps coming, because that's what you know the Fed, I think, when they first adopted their policies, which were perceived or meant to be perceived as, as easing, although I don't think they made money available to the middle and lower class, but it's been great if you're a hedge fund operator or if you already are very wealthy, then you can get money for virtually nothing. But if their model was working, their fear was that that would happen, and that's yeah. why they started paying interest on reserves so that they could quickly squelch a rise in, in inflation by basically uh, paying banks not to make loans. Well, that hasn't happened. Banks are only too happy to take, oh, so this I wanted to go to. We, we started out Fed funds sure. when that used to be the way that was the tool the, the Fed used, mechanism. the transmission mechanism. 
these are dangerous tools now. I've already spoken about quantitative easing, and to me, the 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 loss of, of fiscal integrity when your own central bank is buying your own obligations and then giving you the interest back. So quantitative easing to me has those issues. So that tool, I, I certainly don't want to see it go to having the Fed buy corporate assets. I mean, that would equity. I used to work on the Soviet economy. <laughs> that now yeah. it's yeah. happening in Japan. Now it's exactly, happening yeah. in Hong Kong. It's uh, uh, the, the end the, of the, the UK Soviet. is buying you know corporate bonds and you know specific. Bonds of companies that make a meaningful impact to the UK economy. It just came out this week from the, the Bank of England, for instance. When I was out at Stanford at the Hoover Institution, my postdoctoral fellowship was based on studying the economy of the Soviet Union and had a very dry title. Well, it came out ultimately as a book called The Coming Soviet Crash because what became very apparent is through the Soviet banking system. They were doing something very similar. Mm. They were keeping state-owned enterprises alive by channeling empty credits through the system that were sterile. They were, they were financing, I mean, they, they couldn't even judge the profitability. You just had goods being produced for which there was no demand. And if we get to the point where our own banks become utilities of a central government <laughs> saying we want you to make loans to this sort of company or this, this, these, or this exact company because, or, well, that's the signal they would be giving because if they start buying the debt or the assets of those companies, they're telling the market these are the favored companies. Well, and yeah. that, that would be... That let's would hope be, we're not going towards that would be the Soviet model. Yeah, exactly. I think there's definitely <laughs> some legitimate questions about that. would be central planning through central yeah, banking, and we don't want to go there. No, no. And, and, and their only other tool now is if they raise what they're talking about doing is paying banks more on those sterile deposit accounts they maintain at their district feds. And those we already have, what, $2.6 in excess reserves. All you're doing, banks are only too happy to, to, to churn government securities and get paid passively. They're, they're more concerned about hiring the next compliance officer than the next loan officer. So we have really hurt financial intermediation, the people, you know, the hardware store owner who wants to uh, get a new roof or, or just the, the kind of local community borrowers who they get turned down now by the banks. So. Right. All right. Well, on that note, <laughs> well, uh, thank you very much for coming in, Judy. A pleasure. Really, really enjoyed it. speaking with both of you. Thank you. Thanks and, for having uh, me. And, you know, let's see what happens. Good. Obviously, since we spoke to Judy, Trump has further expanded on his economic plans and doubled down on some of them in the first debate, even with Secretary of State Hillary Clinton. He's still promising massive tax cuts, but he says he won't create quite as big a run-up in the national debt as he thought before, although it would be sizable and much larger than former Secretary of State Clinton's own plans. But the campaign is certainly far from over, so stay tuned. We'll have more exchange podcasts, probably about the election, to come. If you haven't already, please sign up on iTunes and anywhere else you satisfy your audio cravings for The Exchange, The Views Room, and other Reuters podcasts. You can also check us out at BreakingViews.com and, of course, on Twitter at BreakingViews, at Gina Chan, at Rob Wancox. Thanks for tuning in and adios.